Our patients leave critical care. Do we ever see them again? Should we? I ask that question. Let's go. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast, episode number 51. I'm not back with you as often as I would like to be, but I'm still trying to make as many efforts as I can to produce podcast episodes, so here we go. I was very fortunate last week and went to the Intensive Care Society State of the Art Conference 2016 and whilst I was there I managed amongst other things to get a few podcast episodes recorded and I made some videos but more of those later. Let's start with the first podcast episode. Let's go ahead and listen. So I'm with uh, Professor Brett at the um, Intensive Care Society State of the Art Conference 2016 Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him was because um, I was there when he did his uh, presentation on intensive care follow-up clinics um, alongside Brian Cuthbertson. Cuthbertson. Now you were arguing for intensive care follow-up clinics and I gather from your presentation that it's something you've been doing for some time as well. what do you do and why do we have intensive care follow-up clinics? What's the benefit to the patient and to the service as a whole? So I started our clinic at Hammersmith Hospital around 16 years ago with some vague notion that uh, it would be helpful for patients to be able to talk through their time in the intensive care unit. What I'd heard from other colleagues who'd been doing this for a while, people like Carl Vordman in Reading, was that they had, uh, with their clinics, they felt that they were delivering real value to their patients in uh, somewhat filling in the black hole that many people have as their experience of intensive care. Mm. Uh, So that was really where I started from and I didn't really have much of a clue beyond that. And then as my experience of talking with patients grew, um, then I felt I was able to cover more ground with them and not only was I able to go through their experience in our particular intensive care unit, but also start to fill in some of the medical bits of the black hole and what I found was that from time to time when people were uh, being handed from team to team bits of their sort of medical narrative was being dropped and there were important bits of their medical care that hadn't been continued as perhaps one might have anticipated. So some examples of that would be? Well the worst example was of a chap who'd had his pancreas removed completely and uh, he, I asked him how his diabetes was, and he looked at me very blankly and said, what diabetes? And I said, the, the little injections that you have? To which his response was, oh, the things the wife gives me. And when I managed to unpick this story, we'd sent him home without telling him he was diabetic or any arrangement for treating or following it up. And the only reason that he had survived was that his wife was diabetic. And she recognised what was happening to him and had just started treating his diabetes with her own insulin. So by accident, um, he'd done well because he was married to who he was married to. Mm. It wasn't a triumph for us. And um, so that is the, that's an, a bit of an outlier. But more commonly, things like future investigations, which we had anticipated uh, not happening, and um, particularly uh, occasional follow-up pathways which had been dropped... Uh, rehab plans which haven't come to particular fruition and occasionally I find people who are medically unstable Mm. and who actually need a major bit of input into their current management. There's a whole variety of ways which I think we help people. 
which of course does present a real challenge in terms of evaluating effectiveness. So are these patients, for example, not being followed up by their medical teams? Because presumably as they go through their journey in the hospital, they were under the medical teams or the surgical teams. Are they getting missed by those as well? So I think it's about focus. So some of the medical teams are very thorough and they're used to dealing with patients who have complex medical problems. So, for example, my colleagues in nephrology uh, who have the neighbouring ward, as it happens, then their uh, follow-up is very thorough. They see their patients very regularly because often they come in for dialysis clinics. So I don't worry so much about them. But patients who go on to surgical services but who have complex medical problems, then sometimes the focus can be elsewhere, and that's where there's an opportunity for the story to go. Right. Okay. Uh, and one of the things I did want to mention this because uh, I, I heard it quite clearly was the inappropriately removed driving license. I mean, what happened there? So this was a chap who was an a, a elderly gentleman who was a retired engineer, who uh, was a very upright citizen, and because he was told that he'd had a convulsion when he was admitted with us with a really unwell with a pneumonia. He'd written to the DVLA and said, I've had a convulsion, and they immediately took his driving license away. Uh, and he lived with his wife. He was the sole carer for his wife, and they'd become completely socially isolated. Mm. And it wasn't a very good reason to take away his driving license. So um, after I'd seen him, I was able to phone up, and by luck as much as judgment, got straight through to the chief medical officer at the DVLA, and we had a very brief discussion, and she recognised that a mistake had happened. Presumably a well-structured conversation because of her yeah. background. Yes, exactly. And, um, and by later that afternoon, I managed to get his driving licence returned to him, which was, I did have a feeling of triumph, of a, yeah, victory, I, against I the a victory against the machine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing you said as well, uh, right at the end, is the terrible unrealistic expectations. What kind of expectations do they come with? So this is a whole variety of things. So there are people who uh, have unrealistic expectations of what they might recover to. So people who uh, have set themselves an ambition which for them is going to be unachievable. Mm. Um, and then there are other people who set themselves what are probably achievable objectives for them, but with an unrealistic timeline. And sometimes there are people who you would not anticipate struggling. Um, so sometimes younger people, often very high achievers, who normally in, have a very high degree of control of their own lives, and they will anticipate being back running, back in the gym, mm. etc. Mm. And they set themselves targets which they repeatedly fail to achieve. And I think unless they're given t permission to recover at the right rate for them, then there is a danger of them feeling that they're persistently failing and, and, and heading into a, a cycle of, sort of misery and potentially depression. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, one of the things that um, became very clear during the discussion um, is, is that there's a number of problems with it, and, and probably one of the main problems is that no one seems to be able to actually validate it from uh, a research point of view that it actually has something that's going to do somebody some good. And this is the discussion you had with Brian and yourself. Yeah. Where, where do you see, how do you see that being resolved, and, and how can you therefore justify the follow-up clinic? So I think the, the, cha the challenge for us scientifically is that we're not doing the same thing to everybody. So normally when we try and evaluate an intervention, the intervention is fairly definable and therefore you can build an outcome measure which actually allows you to assess change. The problem that we have I think with follow-up clinics is often they, it, they deliver different things for different people. 
And that means that our conventional tools, our conventional way of, uh, of, of quantifying in a reductionist way, actually start to collapse a bit. And uh, we talked a bit about the generic quality of life instruments, the things that people commonly use, like the MQ5D, which allows us to calculate quality-adjusted life years, and the SF36. Um, but we also discussed a, uh, a beautiful paper by Wan Chin Lim uh, from her PhD, mm -hmm. uh, where she used a qualitative methods approach and tried to cross-tabulate quality of life as described in a qualitative method against the SF36 and the EQ5D and there really was very poor agreement and she identified a very large number of important domains of, that for patients, many of which have no representation yeah. in the EQ5D or the SF36 at all. And it's interesting, I've got it in front of me here now um, and some of the things that she comes up with I can imagine probably weren't mentioned in the other, the other um, tools. Uh, with things like uh, outlook in life, support from spirituality and church, um, you know, there's, there are the common things like ability to look after themselves. But um, there's a lot on there. You know, guilt about putting family through the experience, anger and conflict within the family. Um, so, what the patient thinks um, gives them a good quality of life is not necessarily what the quality of exactly. life indicators tell us. Exactly, that. because the generic quality of life instruments, they, uh, we have predetermined what the important domains are mm. and of course individual quality of life isn't like that and, and you may have a mathematically equivalent uh, estimate of health utility but for two which may be identical for two individuals whose lived experience is is very very different and and we haven't quite worked out how to do this properly yet and um, I think the point which Brian was making is that you can't go showering public resources on something which can't demonstrate a value. And I wouldn't disagree with any of that. My personal problem is I don't quite understand yet how to capture the heterogeneity of benefit for people. And we've not yet worked out how to use qualitative methods as outcome measures. Mm. And, uh, and I mean, we're learning more and more with qualitative methods. And I mean, I come from Imperial, which is the sort of last bastion of reductionist quantitative science. Yeah. Um, but I've learned how much there is in understanding through stories. Um, but I haven't quite worked out how I get that whole sort of circle to be completed. So how are you justifying at the moment the money you're spending on your ICU follow-up clinics? Uh, well, I can justify it to myself in that I personally perceive that we're delivering, delivering utility. We get very good feedback from the patients and the patients' families. Mm -hmm. Because what we also have to remember, and this is also difficult, is that quite often we deliver a degree of benefit to patients' families who are not our patients, who are not entered onto our um, information systems. Yeah. We don't charge for conversations with relatives. Nevertheless, as, as we know, intensive care has a often very unpleasant and negative effect on on patients families and occasionally the the benefit that we deliver is as much about helping people's families understand what happened and sometimes actually putting families back together where the stress of the critical illness has caused fracture yeah and as you run your um, follow-up clinic who's involved in your clinic is it is it it's just medical or is there a, a rehab element to it what how, how is it structured so my my clinic is is just me at the moment H historically I had a psychologist who was doing a PhD with me 
and some of the research that, that we did in the early years of this formed a major part of, of her PhD mm-hmm. and she subsequently trained as a counselling psychologist and whilst she was um, soon after our training she was she would continue to do the clinic with me and, and she helped a number of patients. So our model is very minimalist and that means that if I identify particular things that patients need then I have to bounce that back primarily to the community. Mm. Um, sometimes I get a very positive response, even on a Friday afternoon, mm-hmm. from local primary care physicians. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get a completely befuddled response, um, and a- occasionally it's possible to say to the, the, the GP, look, if you don't have a plan for this, then do you want me to sort it out? The commissioning arrangements mean we have to go via primary care. Right. We're not allowed to, to refer people sort of horizontally within our own institution unless we find something that's justifiably an emergency, which occasionally we find, but not that frequently. Mm-hmm. So, referring people for, because I, I know that um, once you'd finished your conversation, uh, Danny Bear came on, he's a dietitian, um, I think we had some physiotherapy input as well. I think one of the biggest problems is that if you do refer somebody for further treatment, uh, I think a, a figure of nine months was quoted yeah. for getting a physiotherapy appointment out there in the community. So that kind of ties your hands anyway, doesn't it? Even if you see a patient who you want followed up, getting those resources is very difficult. It is, and there are groups of people who are particularly disadvantaged. So there are some individuals who are able to access physiotherapy support privately and uh, and they can obviously access support easily and others from the more disadvantaged part of our community who who struggle. Um, occasionally we have actually brought people back into the hospital physiotherapy service but we have to do that with permission of primary care otherwise we'll end up being sent to the naughty step yeah. by the commissioning group. Because presumably primary care still get charged for them they going do. They re- do, exactly. through that door again. And there's, there's still the sort of demand management thing. <clears throat> and to be honest the patient's you know, if they, a lot of them would rather have to, these services delivered close to their homes rather than have to schlep off to Hammersmith Hospital or where, wherever they happen to be. Yeah. The issue is that in that the provision of these community AHP mechanisms are patchy at best. Yeah. And it's, it seems to, it seems to me from what you've just said that community-based resources would probably be some of the best ways to actually deal with these problems. Um, it, it would stop patients having to come back into hospital, um, it would free up the resources within the hospital, but that's not something that's happening at the moment, and is there any vision for that? So change? I think there, there are some parts of certainly northwest London where that type of thing is in place uh, because it's been created precisely for readmission avoidance. So there are some community mechanisms in some parts of northwest London where the commissioners have chosen to put resource uh, into the community with the primary objective of avoiding people bouncing back into hospital. Mm. And in those areas, they are perfectly happy to deploy those resources to help intensive care patients who need a bit of extra uh, community-based rehabilitation. But it is patchy. Yeah, okay. Um, so, just to summarise, really, because I've, I've just got your last slide in front of me. Um, some of the popular problems with the um, studies is basically we've got unselected populations and uncertain interventions. Like you say, you know, everybody seems to need something different, so it's going to be hard to actually uh, evaluate that. The comparator arms are not true controls, and you've got incomplete outcome measures as well. So, actually, there needs to be a discussion, like you say, about 
qualitative methods of um, research in order to assess these things. Um, and it needs, ultimately, I guess, we need that to be able to back up the, um, the cost of the service and the benefit to the patient. Do you see ICU follow-up clinics growing or do you see them stagnating or can you see current financial climate people saying sorry it's not a service we can provide at the moment I think it's, it may be different in, in different parts of the country I doubt there will be a wholesale reduction in follow-up clinics um, I think trusts do have to demonstrate that stuff that they deliver adds value for patients I think if we can if we have patient support then it strengthens that argument that even though we haven't yet done a hard scientific evaluation of what we're doing, the fact that the patients feel they deliver value uh, is a powerful argument. And they're not ludicrously expensive. I mean, when we're comparing them up against uh, expensive operating theatre time or uh, some of the drugs that we now use to treat conditions mm. uh, are egregiously expensive. And we're not in anywhere near in, in that league. And there are other services out there as well um, that haven't necessarily been proven from a research point of view. I mean, the one that comes to mind for me is the critical care outreach service. Yeah. Um, it's now so embedded in most hospital cultures that I don't think you would ever be able to get rid of it. Um, but it's never been proven. But, uh, you know, anecdotally and from a common sense point of view, you can see the benefits of it and people appreciate it. And I think that's the way we're going to go with the clinics, perhaps. Yes, I think that's true. And, I mean, outreach is an interesting example. It's one of these things which just ought to be a good idea. Uh, but it does illustrate some of the difficulties of these doing this sort of health services research. Because if you, uh, unless you do a fully structured, randomised, controlled trial with a cluster randomised design, then you are always vulnerable to crossover within your own institution. So what I mean is that... For example, if a patient is following one particular treatment path in an intervention arm, then staff inevitably see what that patient's experience is, mm. and it starts to contaminate your control arm. Mm. So it's very hard to keep proper scientific separation. Which is where the, I think the qualitative method yeah. would probably be more advantageous, wouldn't it, for something like that? It, it may be, but, the, but the, the challenge is working out how we produce a persuasive supporting argument based on qualitative outcomes and perhaps using the qualitative data to allow us to develop more quantitative outcome measures. And we have to recognise as well that people's experience of recovery varies from time to time. So there is this concept of response shift. So if you ask people about what their experience has been, their response is often somewhat governed by the time interval between the event and, and recall mm. um, and you see similar things with rehabilitation measures mm. so what works very well in the intensive care unit or shortly after as a quantitative assessment of rehabilitation or functional status may well have reached its ceiling by the time the patient's discharged home and is therefore useless as an outcome measure and there are other things that don't work well early on in the rehab path because they're just calibrated at the wrong level of function yeah. and and designing a study where you use different outcome comparators or different outcome measurements at different points in the recovery journey uh, it looks scientifically inelegant to say the least yeah absolutely and very difficult okay well thank you for that um, i think icu clinics are important um, the discussion in the room um, it was um, a pretty full room 
Um, so there was a lot of people very interested in it. Um, standing room only, if I remember rightly. Um, and I think Brian um, did put a lot of good points um, forward as to why we shouldn't run them, but mainly I think it was a cost versus benefit. Um, and I think proving either or both is something that we need to try and do in the future. But for me, and probably one of the most important things you said, is that the benefit to the patient. The patient finds it very valuable. It helps them sort through any problems that they may or may not have. Uh, you know, if we can catch the odd patient with a diabetic problem or a driving license issue, then surely that's got to be worth our, worth our time and, and effort, I think. Thank you very much for talking My pleasure. Do you know, I had such fun at the State of the Art conference. I was immensely busy. I went armed with all kinds of rubbish. I had microphones. I had my camera. I had my phone, my smartphone, which was also using as a camera and a recording device. I had a green screen, I had lighting, it was ridiculous the amount of stuff I took, but to be honest with you, I used it all and I was in geek heaven. You can imagine I produce a regular podcast. I don't do it just because I like the sound of my own voice, I do it because I love the technology behind it, so I actually really, really enjoyed myself. I was working long days, I was up at sort of, you know, six o'clock in the morning and often wasn't finished till ten, half ten in the evening by the time I'd produce the green screen videos which you can go and look at on YouTube if you want to. I'll also put them on the page on the Critical Care Practitioner podcast page that goes with this podcast so if you want to go and look at them I did three summaries of my day at the Intensive Care Society State of the Art so it was just the conferences I attended it wasn't a summary of the whole day by any means because that would have required about another six people and unfortunately we didn't have those resources. Hopefully that might change next year. Anyway, the conference was fabulous. As I say, I've got another two podcasts out of it as well. So um, we're going to be talking a nutrition podcast very shortly, and then we're going to be talking an intensive care rehab. I'm not sure whether they're going to go in that order, but that's what's coming. Um, So I hope you enjoyed that one. I found it very useful to speak to uh, Professor Webb about some of the issues. Um, We can't necessarily financially justify the ICU rehab clinics or follow sorry follow-up clinics um, but like I said at the end of that interview I think that doesn't necessarily mean it's not something we should be doing as well anyway um, oh the other exciting news is whilst I was at the conference as well I met Roger Harris who's one of the smack organizers and he very kindly asked me whether I would like a media pass to um, the Berlin smack conference next year which means that um registration is covered I've still got to find the hotel and the flights but of course I fell over my feet to say yes because I I feel privileged to be asked to be honest um, to such a a prestigious conference Uh, I've wanted to go for years I haven't been to one yet and this looks like a good opportunity to do so so I'm really excited about that so the um, excitement levels will be building up over the next few months anyway keep an ear out we've got some more podcasts lined up Um, So hopefully it won't be quite so long between the next one. um, And I hope to speak to you soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner, or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. (laughs) 